Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just pray now that you would uh, focus our attention upon you and upon your your word. We pray that you would uh, help us to understand this so important uh, biblical truth and uh, to wrap our minds around it as best that we can. And uh, Father, we just pray that you would uh, bless our conversation. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so tonight we are talking about God's sovereignty and uh, from Article 3. And of course, if you recall, uh, the original Confession of Faith does not have titles for the paragraph. So I, I titled this one uh, God's Sovereignty. And uh, I'm going to just read it real quick in case you have not read it in a while. It says, God had decreed in himself before the world was concerning all things, whether necessary, accidental, or voluntary, with all the circumstances of them to work, dispose, and bring about all things according to the counsel of his own will to his glory, yet without being the chargeable author of sin. Or having fellowship with any therein, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things, unchangeableness, power, and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. And God hath, before the foundation of the world, foreordained some men to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise and glory of his grace, having foreordained and leaving the rest in their sin to their just condemnation, to the praise of his justice. And so when we talk about the sovereignty of God, because sometimes you'll hear people use the phrase, the providence of God or God's providence. Um, in R.C. Sproul's uh, wonderful little book, the, uh, the 100 Essentials of the Christian Faith, uh, he talks about the fact that growing up he he always just thought Providence was a city in Rhode Island, um, and uh, and and that he is, you know, he's he's surprised by when you read older biographies, such as one that I'm reading now, a biography of George Washington. Um, they would talk about the providence of God much more than you hear it today, and uh, and so when we talk about the sovereignty of God, the providence of God. You know, what's the difference? There, there is some overlap with these two. And for that reason, some theologians actually will lump these two doctrines um, together. Uh, for example, uh, Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology, um, you know, has just one chapter where he talks about the sovereignty of God and, and the providence of God all at the same time. R.C. Sproul does the same thing. He has a chapter, as I mentioned, titled The Providence of God, but in that same chapter is where he discusses God's sovereignty. And then you have others like J.I. Packer in his uh, great little book, um, Concise Theology, Historic Doctrines of the Christian Faith. He has two separate chapters, one on the sovereignty of God and one on divine providence. So, you know, so some people distinguish them. And uh, as does the 1646 you know, Baptist Confession of Faith, that is our confession, they distinguish them as well. Um, because two paragraphs later, uh, Article 5 is really about providence. And let me just read that one to you. So next week, we'll actually, the very next one is, is um, uh, the fall of man. That's Article 4. But then Article 5 is the providence of God. And here's what Article 5 says. It's much shorter. God in his infinite power and wisdom doth dispose all things to the end for which they were created, that neither good nor evil befalls any by chance or without his providence, and that whatsoever befalls the elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good. So what is the difference? I think that's important for us to be able to distinguish the difference between the two. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, 
kind of like the word implies, right? When you think of a sovereign, what comes to mind? A king, right? So when we talk about the sovereignty of God, we're really talking about his his kingship. We're talking about his realm. We're talking about the the extent of his reign and his dominion is what we're talking about there. When we talk about the doctrine of divine providence or the providence of God, that has to do with the governance of God, the extent the extent of God's governing, the extent to which God is actively involved in creation, um, actually governing and doing and moving, so to speak, right? So does that make sense? So obviously there's, like I said, there's overlap, right? Um, God governs because God is king. He is the sovereign of the universe and therefore he governs uh, by means of divine uh, providence. All right, so with that as our brief intro into this topic, um, I am actually just going to sort of take this, uh, this statement on the sovereignty of God piece by piece, and then we'll look at some scriptures. Uh, most of the scriptures we'll look at are the ones that they offer. Uh, I threw in a few of my own, um, but they do a really good job. I and mean, we're not going to look at all of the passages. If you pull this up or if you did it before coming tonight, there's, they, they offer a lot of scripture verses, um, which in and of itself would be great just to go through and look up all of these verses uh, on your own for each paragraph. There's a, a ton of information there. And so they start by saying, God had decreed in himself before the world was concerning all things, whether necessary, accidental, or voluntary with all the circumstances of them to work, to dispose, and to bring about all things according to the counsel of his own will and to his glory. So first of all, the word decree means to set or to determine or to ordain. And you'll see that uh, kind of language used in systematic theologies. We talk about the decrees of God, right? We have the, uh, the revealed decrees of God, the secret decrees of God, uh, the two wills of God. Um, and so when we talk about the decrees of God, we're talking about the things which God has determined to be, the things which God has decided uh, to do or to ordain as it will. And it says that God had decreed in himself before the world was concerning all things. In other words, before the world even began, God already decrees Everything that will be, everything that will exist, everything that will happen, God has decreed um, all of it before the world began for his glory. Uh, some passages that they offer, uh, first of all, um, look at Isaiah 46.10. Isaiah 46.10 Talking about God, I'll start in verse 8 to give it context. Isaiah 46, 8, 9, and then 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring, this is verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things, in other words, declaring from ancient times, declaring Things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God declares, he decrees the beginning from the end. All of world history, all of redemptive history, God decrees it uh, into being and into existence. Um, all things are according to his will. Ephesians 1.11. Ephesians 1.11. In him, talking about Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works all things. You know, it's, it's probably being quoted way too many times at this point, 
but you know R.C. Sproul would always say that there's no such thing as a, a maverick molecule, right? Because if there is one molecule anywhere in the universe that is outside of the sovereign control of God, then God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, then God is not omnipotent. And if he's not omnipotent, then he's, he's not infinite. And if God's not infinite, then God ceases to be God, right? And so God is in sovereign control. He works all things according to Ephesians 1.11. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. You know, I've always thought that an amazing passage that just came to mind is uh, Matthew 10, where uh, Jesus talks about um, is not a, uh, a, 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 a sparrow uh, worth more than a penny, yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. Right? Not one sparrow, he says, falls to the ground outside of the sovereign will of God. Now, whether he's talking about a bird that flutters and lands, you know, he just says falls to the ground, or maybe he's talking about a bird that just dies, you know, and falls to the ground, falls out of a nest, falls out of a tree. But whichever he's talking about, of all of the birds around the entire planet, Jesus says not one falls to the ground outside the sovereign will of God, your Father. And God works all things, and this is what they say in the statement, right? They say, God had decreed in himself before the world was concerning all things, whether necessary, accidental, or appear to be accidental, voluntary, with all the circumstances of them, in other words, and everything that goes with it, right, with all the events, to work, to dispose, and to bring about all things according to the counsel of his own will to his glory is what our confession of faith says they get that from romans eleven thirty three. we looked at that last week but that's the passage they cite is romans eleven uh 36 romans eleven thirty six. 36 uh but we should start with 33 i think starting with 33 is a good place to start oh the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. How unsearchable are his judgments. I mean, who can really know the mind of God? And he goes on to say that in verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. So everything God does, He does for His glory. Somehow, everything that happens in this world, whether big or small, you know, um, seemingly random things or things done on purpose, everything somehow is for God's ultimate glory. Yeah. I was just thinking, and of course we all know this, but we realize when we, when we read these words coming through the Apostle Paul, it's literally God who put these words down yeah. with a complete purpose mm -hmm. in mind in a particular order. You yes. Know, it's, it's like if you read the words, it's like you have to remember this is God yeah. talking to us. You're right. That's right. This is God speaking. I mean, that, that's what God, the, the, all of Scripture is God breathed. Right, the apostles. It's God breathed, and it is God speaking to us, and uh, and it's all for His glory because His glory is the reason God does anything. You know, God the the primary and only reason God does anything is for His glory. When God created the heavens and the earth, it was for His glory. When God created Adam and Eve, it was for His glory. Um, everything that happens throughout the entire Bible, throughout the Old Testament, the invasions of Israel, right, is all for His glory somehow. Um, even the war that is going on now in Israel somehow is for God's glory. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. 
I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Right? We were all created for God's glory. Jesus came into the world and lived the life of obedience to the law and died on the cross for God's glory. He actually says that in John chapter 17, the beginning of his high priestly prayer, verses 1 to 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth. I glorified you on earth. How's that? Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Right? So God, Christ says, I glorified you by accomplishing everything that you told me to do. Right? So he comes into the world, lives a life of obedience to the law, dies on the cross for sins, all for his glory, and God does as he pleases and answers to no one. He is the sovereign king, right? He is the sovereign. That's what we mean when we talk about the sovereignty of God. Psalm 115, verse 3. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Right? That's, that's sovereign. Right? There's no such thing as a sovereign king today. I mean, there was once a time when nations had true sovereign monarchs who did what they desired within their own kingdom. Not today. They're all constitutional monarchs to some degree. They're all limited in power by their own constitution or parliament or whatever the case may be, but not the God of creation. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deep. So this is, this is hugely different than the way sadly many evangelicals think of god so often the god that you hear preached across many pulpits is a god who is in heaven and he's frustrated you know and he's sort of pulling his hair out and he's wringing his hands because oh my word you know if uh if if they would just you know follow my word if people would just believe in the gospel if the church would just you know um, and, and, he's, and he's just, he's trying, God is trying to save everybody, right? He's trying to save everybody, but he's, he's frustrated because people won't listen and, and, and the Holy Spirit is sort of dancing around in front of unbelievers trying to get their attention. But here the Bible says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does, right? If God desired to please everyone or if god desired to save everyone then guess what everyone would be saved right no one would perish because god does what he pleases and if not everyone is saved then it's because god does not desire for that to be and he has his reasons and we'll talk about that as we get into some other paragraphs i don't want to get ahead of myself on that but god is not frustrated the god of the bible is a sovereign king who sits upon his throne and he is moving all of world history in the direction that he wants it to go. He has declared the end from the beginning and all of world history is going, is going exactly the way he wants it to. God sits in heaven and says, everything is going according to plan. Right? Think about that the next time you're watching our beloved president on TV. Right? God is saying, our president is doing exactly 
what I want him to do. What's that? I can think of a lot of other instances that that is like <laughs> profound. Yeah. <laughs> if that knowledge would stay there. Yeah. <laughs> Continually. I mean, in 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 and it's it's comforting though, right? It's comforting, and and it's hard for us to wrap our mind around that, but we we see the same thing in the Bible, right? And we don't struggle with that. I mean, how many times do you think the Pharaohs? assistance or second in command were saying to him dude really i mean how 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 many times are you going to change your mind and not let let them go for crying out loud right and and pharaoh would just he was stubborn he was stubborn he was stubborn and and those that were near him were probably thinking why are you you know keep going this way and allowing this to happen but of course god wasn't frustrated with pharaoh God is thinking, he's doing exactly what I want him to do, right? He's doing exactly what I want him to do. Uh, Joseph, you wonder how often Joseph kicked himself when he's in that Egyptian prison thinking, oh, man, I've made some bonehead mistakes to get myself here, right? I mean, oh, my word. Why did I have to prance around in that coat of many colors in front of my brothers when I knew they were jealous of me in the first place? I already knew I was on the short list, right? I mean, he probably kicked himself a million times, frustrated. God is looking down on the whole situation and saying, nope, you're exactly where I want you to be, right? And you didn't get there a day early, and you're not going to leave a day sooner. God is in control of all of it. Um, and Joseph came to realize that. He came to realize that at the end, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, right? Um, he understood that. God does what he pleases. He is not frustrated, not only with what's happening in the United States, not even on a big level, but in your own life. Whatever is happening in your own private, personal life that causes you to lose sleep at night, just know that God is looking on the entire situation and saying, everything is going perfectly according to plan. Right? <laughs> so, rest easy. <laughs> That's right. It's all for His glory. Somehow, whatever we go through in life, God receives glory in it. In any number of ways. There's any number of ways. We sit here and we can think, how? Right? Whatever it is you're going through, maybe what you've been through, how? Well, who can know the mind of God, right? I'm sure Joseph may have thought that when he's being sold into slavery, watching his brothers get smaller and smaller in the distance, right? And then he's, he's in Potiphar's house, and then he gets falsely accused, and then he's in prison. And if you go back and you, you, you know, there's time markers, if you go back and read carefully, there's time markers. It, it, it would appear that he spent nearly 10 years in prison. 10 years for a crime he didn't commit. God is saying, everything is going exactly as I want it to go. And God got glory, right? God got glory when it was all said and done. At the end of the day, we don't always know, and we may not even know it in this lifetime, we may, we may get on the other side before we realize, oh, now I understand why God took me through that, right? If only we had foresight and hindsight, right? Right, right. I think your hand went up, Bobby. Well, I was just saying, just recently I talked to a friend of mine, and this is an example where sometimes it's difficult. And his kids race motorcycles, dirt bikes, and that very morning, he was there, this is just a couple of days ago, a 15-year-old girl lost control of her bike and killed herself in mm. a tree. Mm. A little 15-year-old girl that liked, liked the sport, and she's gone. Mm. So it's kind of like, so Martin and I, I mean, we prayed, we prayed for the family, we have no idea who they are, what their beliefs may be or not be, but those yeah. times can be pretty difficult. Yeah. That's when, that's when God is gracious because he strengthens us even in in our hard times, 
our affirmities, um, whatever it is, he's there to strengthen us. Right. Because he does mean for our good, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah, whatever it is. So then the, uh, the statement, this uh, Article 3 in, uh, in our statement of faith, the next phrase says, Yet without being the chargeable author of sin or having fellowship with any therein. Right? God is not the author of sin. God does not cause us to sin. And this is where the great mystery comes in, that somehow God is in sovereign control of everything, Yet we are free moral agents, right? We are not puppets. God isn't moving us around on a string. You know, when we, when we you know, reach out and steal an apple or, you know, swipe something that isn't ours or click on something on the Internet we shouldn't click on, God isn't moving our hand, right? We are free moral agents. We're not, we're not robots. Yet somehow the sovereignty of God lies behind and underneath everything we do. Right? Everything we do. And there's many passages that talk, talk about that. Numbers 23.19, they actually cite this. And I thought, uh, this is a good passage to cite. Numbers 23.19, it's one of those little verses that you, you know, would just quickly read over and not really pay attention to the, the implications of, of, of what is being stated. 23.19, um, God is not a man, or that's not the one I was thinking of, we'll get to it. Uh, God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. God is not a man that he should lie. God doesn't lie, right? He does not. Uh, Romans 3, uh, 3 and 4. What does that say? Romans 3, 3 and 4. Yeah, go ahead and read it. Right. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you, talking about God, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Right. So um, reading something today that a little bit follows up with this. Because he doesn't lie, then he is going to keep every promise he ever said he was... That's right. To keep, you know, yeah. Anything he's ever said, he will do. Right. God always keeps his word. Which gives um, the Christians uh, that hope and that assurance that we're not just floating around trying to do something that might not ever happen. It's, it's for sure. God yeah. said it. He's not a liar. It will be done. Right. Right. And in Psalm 5, 5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes, talking to God. You hate all evil doers. You hate all evil doers. Um, so obviously, you know, if God hates all evil doers, then God himself cannot engage in evil. Because then that would be the height of hypocrisy, right? How does God hate people? For that which he himself does or engages in, right? God does not engage in evil. And then Habakkuk 1.13, that's a popular one that uh, most of you are familiar with. Um, whoever gets there first can go ahead and read it. Habakkuk 1.13. Habakkuk's always a fun book to find. Most people end up going to their table of contents. Where is Habakkuk? You who are of pure eyes see Right. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than him? So that first part, you who are a pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Now that's not to say, 
you know, that, that, that God is blind to sin, that he doesn't see sin at all, or that he, you know, oh, it's terrible, right? But he, he takes no delight in it whatsoever. He, take, he does not enjoy seeing it. He sees what we do, but does not enjoy looking upon it. Um, God is pure and holy and righteous and good. So when we talk about, you know, the sin that is in the world, when we talk about Adam and Eve, God is sovereign, yet Adam and Eve partook of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? God is not the author of sin. God is not the originator of sin. Adam and Eve were created with a free will, right? Truly had a free will, free moral agents. They chose to sin against God. Yet even in that, we still have to acknowledge God was in sovereign control. And, and he decreed, God decreed the fall because nothing happens outside of the will of God. God is never shocked. He's never surprised, right? God does not learn. Process theology is a heresy, right? God knows the future. Open theism is a heresy, right? Um, nothing happens outside of the will of God. Yeah. I find it interesting. It's making me think of the old. Uh, we're not. We're not all. Um, oh, what was his name? Say, uh, he said, "The devil made me do it." Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it reminds me of that because you know people right. will say that, and it's like no. Right. So God doesn't. God doesn't decree decree it, or, or I mean, He doesn't allow it in that sense. He doesn't look upon it and all of that, but yet. The devil doesn't make you do it either. No, he doesn't. The devil doesn't make us do it. I mean, unless people are, you know, the only exception to that is people that are truly demon-possessed. Um, but, but apart from demon possession, uh, he, he, he tempts us. He whispers thoughts into our head. But we chose, we choose to listen um, when we give in to temptation. It goes on to say, in which, meaning the decrees of God, in which appears, in God's decrees, appear his wisdom in disposing all things, his unchangeableness, his power, and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. So what the authors are saying is that in these decrees, in the decrees of God are revealed, we see the wisdom of God. We see the unchangeableness of God. We see the power of God. We see the faithfulness of God as he accomplishes all of these things. Eric and I are reading through, well, it's part of it right now. We're doing the judges and we're going through the book of judges and just to see the rise and fall. I mean, it's like right. every new judge that comes, you know, they listen to the judge and they do right when the judges, then that judge dies and boom, there they go again. So God yeah. raises up another judge and here they go. And it's kind of like, and Eric was going, this one, he was like, well, what about God? I was like, exactly, what about God? They were listening to the judges, and they were doing what the judges told them. They were usurping God's authority. So he's like, I'm going to just drop you back down again. Right, yeah, yeah. So, the, the book of Judges is like this this uh -huh. this hamster wheel that she keeps going yep. round and round, right? They they get themselves into trouble and they cry out to God. So God sends them a judge, and the judge delivers them, mm -hmm. and everything is great. And then again, they turn away from God. They make a mess of themselves. They cry out to God. God sends another judge, right? And it's just, it's this vicious cycle that, that they're in, um, which is sad because it's really a very good picture of, of our lives oftentimes, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we find ourselves on the, on the high places, right? Life is good. And then, you know, we, we, we tumble down. We make a mess. We cry out to God. He delivers us. We're back on the high places. Life is good. And then it's just, it's this vicious cycle over and over again, right? But, uh, but, but God is in sovereign control of, of, of all things, even the seemingly random things. Exodus 21, 12, and 13. Exodus 21, verses uh, 12 and 13. Whoever strikes a man... So that he dies, shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, 
then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. Notice that phrase right there. But God let him fall into his hand. So even as a crime, in a crime that is being committed here, God is in control. He is in sovereign control of seemingly random accidents, right? Things that just seem, this is just random. person runs a red light, kills another. God is in sovereign control even of these things. That's what the, uh, the writer is, is telling us here. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place in which he may flee. Proverbs 16.33. Look at Proverbs 16.33. Uh-huh. But it's every decision is from the Lord. Right. The lot is cast into the lap. Dice or something. We're not really sure what a lot was or what it looked like. I've read several articles on it. Archaeologists don't really know exactly what a lot looked like, but it was some sort of um, dice of some kind that was cast. But what that passage is telling us is that God is in sovereign control even of seemingly insignificant things insignificant right when you're playing a board game with dice those dice are not outside of the sovereign will of god there are no maverick molecules right so that's that that's right when you get when you get dealt a bad hand right god god gave you that hand Right? I seem to recall. <laughs> when, you, when you keep spinning the wrong number, that God doing that. Right? God is stopping it. That, no, that, right there. Even Thank you, Lord, for losing this game. We know it's part of your plan. Right? Um, there is, and those little verses are what teach us there is nothing outside of God's sovereign control. Why? Because God is the king and all of creation is his dominion. It's his dominion. And his, his reign extends to the very edge of his realm. And there is nothing outside of his sovereign control. Sure. I want to go back to that first sentence where it says the world was concerning all things, whether necessary, accidental, or voluntary. So is that what that's this what we just read about casting of the lots? Is that what it's referring to or referring to as the accidental or the voluntary? Yes. Things that appear to just be accidents. Okay. Right? Tree falls over and, you know, kills somebody, lands on somebody. I mean, you know, those those kind of crazy things happen. Um Fourth of July, people shoot guns. Bullet. I've read stories. Bullet comes through the roof, kills somebody. You know, God is in sovereign control even of those things. Things that seem accidental, things that seem voluntary, things that seem necessary. Whatever it is, there's nothing outside of God's sovereign control. Um, God is even in sovereign control of both good and evil. Look at uh, Isaiah 45. You know, years ago when I was first introduced to Reformed theology, this was one of the verses that just hit me between the eyes like a two-by-four. I mean, when someone pointed it out to me, it, it just, I, it almost knocked me over, literally. Isaiah 45, verse 7. God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things, right, and create calamity. I mean, um, depending on your translation, I think there's, a, I think the New King James might say destruction. Um, you know, the, the flood was a calamitous event, right? 9-11 was a calamitous event. World War I and World War II were calamitous events. God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity, right? 
that you truly understand why we should be so humble before God. Yeah. You know. Yeah. We really are. If it wasn't for Christ, uh, we're nothing. <laughs> right. We're best. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. God does it all, Eric. Yeah. It's amazing. And um, and you know, and 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 you know, and we see those those passages in so many different places. Uh, one that just comes to mind again is, um, you know, the book of Job. Mm-hmm. You know, people, they, they love to go to Job when, when Job is going, you know, Job suffered and when people are going through difficult times, they, they love to go to Job because, you know, poor Job, uh, you know, they, they, he, he was just minding his own business and God is bragging on him and, and the devil does all of these horrible things to him. Um, but then at the end of it, Job 42, verse 11, it says, Then came to him all of his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Wait, wait a minute, who? And Job saw it. I mean, you study Job. Job knows God is behind all of this. Why is he doing this to me? Right? Job doesn't understand, but he understands who's behind it all. Right? He understands that God is sovereign. In the end, you know, God's ways are higher than our ways. We can't understand what God is doing, but this is where we have to take great comfort and trust that that if God is bringing us through a dark valley in life, it is for a good reason. And if you're a believer, it is for our good. Somehow God is shaping our character, growing us in ways that we never even knew we needed to grow in, right? He's shaping our character in ways that we didn't know needed to be shaped, right? If you're a believer, it's always for your good. God does not want to torment his children. He wants to grow us. He wants to strengthen us. He wants to make us like Christ, right? If you're an unbeliever, it may not be for your good, right? Pharaoh being drowned, that wasn't for his good, right? Judas, that wasn't for his good. If you're an unbeliever, it may not be for their good, but it is always for God's glory, right? Everything God does, whether believer or unbeliever, is always somehow designed to bring him glory. And then they say, and God has, before the foundation of the world, foreordained some men to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of his grace, having foreordained and leaving the rest in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his justice. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because there are other articles, obviously, where this is going to be dealt with. But I do want to look at a few passages. Um, and of course, I think most of us in this room, this, this isn't new to us. Uh, but Ephesians 1, 3 to 5, obviously, is always a good place to, uh, to go. Ephesians 1, 3 to 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before. And that's talking about sanctification. Right, so we're cho- we've been chosen not only for salvation, but also for sanctification. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which with He has blessed us in the beloved in Him. Right, um, and so again, God from before the foundations of the world chooses whom he will redeem. Um, And the rest he leaves uh, to their own sin, basically. What we have to understand when we talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation is that all humans are floating face down in the river heading for destruction, right? The, The waterfalls are coming, the big boulders are at the bottom, and we're, we're all floating face down toward destruction. And we all deserve to be there because we brought that on ourselves, right? Starting with Adam and Eve, they chose, brought sin into the world. And then as we grow, we choose to sin, 
right? From the time we're very little, no one makes us sin. We choose to sin. And so we, we put ourselves there. God would be perfectly just in letting everybody perish. He would not be unjust to allow all to perish. But instead, for some amazing reason, in his mercy and grace and goodness, he chooses to save some and he allows the rest to simply perish. God is sovereign and therefore he has the sovereign right to do that. And, you know, people that, that struggle with that, I, I like to remind them that, you know, in every state in the United States, governors uh, and the president of the United States, when it comes to federal prisons, uh, they have the right to pardon people. And every year they pardon individuals. And when they pardon certain individuals, nobody ever says, well, that's not fair. If he's going to pardon one, he has to pardon all of them, right? Nobody ever says that because we understand that the few that got pardoned, they don't deserve to be pardoned. No, none of them do. But yet, for whatever reason, you know, the governor makes his choice based on whatever knowledge he has, and he pardons whom he chooses, and he allows the rest to stay. And nobody ever thinks that that is an injustice, right? Um, God chooses to sovereignly pardon certain criminals and to bring us off of death row and to set us free. We don't deserve it. Nobody deserves it, right? All right, so what's the application to all of this? Why, why does this matter? Right? Because there are some people that, that they're out and they think, you know, all of this theological stuff, you know, does it really matter? Can't we just stick to the gospel? Here's why it matters. Understanding God's sovereignty matters for four very important reasons. Number one, it humbles us. It humbles us by reminding us that we are not the master of our own destiny, right? We're not. We are not in control of our future. Um, uh, Proverbs uh, 16.9 is, is one that I think of often. A man, in his heart, a man plans his life, but the Lord determines his steps, right? You, you can plan all you want. You know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm, I'm going to retire at this age, and when I retire, I'm going to go to Europe, and you, you plan your life all you want, but I've, I've lived long enough, and I'm old enough to know that the old adage is really true. If you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's humbling to realize that we're not, we're not the masters of our own destiny. Number two, understanding God's sovereignty exalts God. It's God exalting because it causes us to realize how magnificent He truly is. He is the King who sits upon His throne, right? And, uh, and that's what makes the Lord's Day so special because when we gather for corporate worship, we are entering into the throne room of our King. God's people are living stones who come together to rebuild the tabernacle, if you will, and that becomes the throne room of our king, and we enter into his presence, and we stand before his throne and worship. That's an amazing experience that we have the privilege of, of being able to participate in uh, every Lord's day. Thirdly, understanding God's sovereignty deepens our worship of God. I mean, when I came to understand the sovereignty of God, it, it just it catapulted my, my worship of God to a, a whole new level because it causes us to realize how dependent we really are on Him, right? We are utterly dependent on God for everything. And, uh, and so the only proper response uh, to a sovereign of that magnitude is to fall on your face before Him and just worship right? Just worship. And the fourth reason understanding the total sovereignty of God is so important is that it strengthens our faith, right? It strengthens our faith because it causes us to realize that God directs everything for our good, right? Romans eight twenty eight. God works all things for the good of those who love Him, right? So... Uh, Proverbs sixteen nine. Yeah, I'm sorry, I just I didn't write it down fast yeah. enough, so I have to 
humbles us? Oh, the first, uh, yes, it humbles us. Okay. It humbles us. And the, the fourth one is it, 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 strengthens, it strengthens our faith. Because even when we, are, when we find ourselves in the midst of life's hurricanes, right, and, and we're, we're, we feel like we're out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean by ourselves with no one around with these 40-foot waves and we're clinging to a life raft or a, a, a life preserver, the bottom line is you're right where God wants you to be, right? You're right where God wants you to be. And that life preserver is Christ. And if you just cling to Christ, God will get you through it. He will get you through it. And someday, someday, the waters will be calm, the sun will be shining, the sky will be blue, right? That may or may not happen in this lifetime. It may be in the next lifetime. But the promise of God is He is saying, if you trust me, and you cling to me and cling to my promises, God promises someday, for sure, the waters will be calm, the sky will be blue, and all will be at peace, right? We just have to cling to Christ. And uh, God is in sovereign control of everything we go through. And it's all, it really is for our good. Somehow he's teaching us something about ourselves. He's teaching us something about him. It's for our good. And it's for his glory. He gets glory out of it. And one way he gets glory is by us clinging to him so tightly as our heavenly father, right? Like a child that is afraid in the middle of a thunderstorm, clinging to their parents, climbing into bed with them, right? I mean, that's God gets glory from that when we cling to our heavenly father in the midst of life's storms because we're afraid. And he says, don't be afraid, right? I'm in control. I've got it. We'll get through this together. Right, we'll get through this together. So that's it. Oh, that God's sovereignty. <laughs> <laughs>